and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find out everything you need to know about Forsythia, the miracle cure of COVID-19. And today's episode, I should say, is brought to you by our friends at Tommy John. More about them later. Uh, so today we have a long time in coming, um, a writer I've read for years, uh, He's a professor of political science at uh, Claremont McKenna and the a longtime Republican until fairly recently and the author of the new book, Un-American, The Fake Patriotism of Donald Trump, John J. Pitney Jr. John, I can call you John, not professor or anything like that? Uh, you can call me Jack. Okay, Jack. Okay. See, that's what I, I – anyway, I, I kept getting confused by that because I always heard you referred to as Jack Pitney and then – I was reading some stuff and I couldn't find anything referencing you as Jack Pitney and I was confused, but I, I get confused a lot. So <laughs> welcome to The Remnant. Thank you. Um, so I actually, you know, despite all of the blowback and grief I get from listeners for being quote unquote Trump obsessed and having Trump derangement syndrome, um, I actually don't have anti-Trump people on here for a full-blown discussion all that often, at least not about Trump himself. Um, but I thought this was a good time to make an exception. If people don't like it, they don't have to listen. Um, but I do want to get into some other poli-sci wonkery oh. as well. Um, but first of all, uh, my favorite question when I'm on a book tour is, what's your book about? <laughs> so what's your book about? Uh, the title says it all, uh, that this is a guy whose slogans are make America great again, keep America great, America first. And uh, I believe he's un-American, uh, un-American in the sense that he uh, is uh, the antithesis of just about everything the country stands for. And I thought that was an important point to make. Um, all right. So why don't you, you know, because un-American obviously is a loaded term. Um, um, I tend to agree with you um, and how you define it. But what do you mean by American, because there are there are certainly many detractors of his on the other side of the aisle. We should both say that we're both conservatives. You actually worked for the Republican Party and on various campaigns in the past. Um, what do you specific? So there are a lot of people on the left who will say that Trump isn't un-American. He's sort of quintessentially American, and that's why they don't like certain aspects of America. Why don't you sort of explain what you mean by an Amer American? Uh, America is about ideas and ideals, and the ultimate expression of those ideas is the Declaration of Independence. And every chapter of the book is titled after a phrase from the Declaration. Uh, for example, all men are created equal. Uh, over and over again, Trump has explicitly said that he does not believe that all men are created equal. Now, uh, he and his defenders would say, well, no, actually what I meant was that people have different levels of ability and obviously uh, someone like a professional basketball player is much more athletic than the typical person and so on. Uh, but my question to him would be, then why did he specifically use that particular phrase? Out of all the phrases in the founding documents, why is that the phrase he knows and why did he so explicitly reject it so many times? 
other phrases uh, such as the administration of justice from the uh, declaration. Obviously, this is a president who, as we have seen in recent days, uh, stands against the rule of law. Uh, and so, uh, as I say in the book, uh, Trump is an American in the same way that Tony Soprano was a Catholic. Uh, he acquired the identity at birth. He sometimes uh, observes the outward rituals, but he utterly rejects the content. Um, so there are, as you well know, there are many theories of Trump and Trumpism. And... Um, I think we don't need to dwell too long on the theory that he is a 12 dimensional chess player who's, you know, a brilliant strategist and all of that kind of thing. But, um, there are people who very seriously think that he is an authoritarian. Um, there are other people who argue that he has, um, fondness for authoritarianism, but is not in fact an authoritarian in part because he doesn't want to do the hard work that authoritarianism <laughs> brings with it. Um, and then there are people who say uh, he's purely performative, that, you know, you shouldn't take him literally. You don't even have to take him seriously. Um, but he is the righteous incarnation of uh, the, the well-deserved desire to stick a thumb in the eye of the libs, the media, all the rest. What are, where do you put him? I mean, then there's like, I, I guess the David Frum thesis would be he's a crook. Um, these are not all mutually exclusive. Uh, but where do you come down on the spectrum? Uh, I would hesitate to use a word like fascist because, as you suggest, he's not smart enough to be a fascist. Uh, and Mussolini was a smart guy. He was a horrible, right. evil human being. But he was a, an intelligent, horrible human being. Uh, you know, Trump, uh, by all accounts, has never even finished a book in his adult life. Uh, but you could say he's authoritarian curious. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he leaned in that direction. And again, we've seen some really disturbing hints of that uh, just in the past few days, in which he talks about the unlimited power of the military, uh, using the military, uh, using uh, tear gas against uh, peaceful demonstrators to clear them out so he could take a uh, photo op uh, at a church. Uh, that's disturbing. And that, uh, even though he doesn't bring to bear the ideology and the, the intellectual superstructure of authoritarianism, uh, his impulses uh, generally move in that direction. And I think that's a, uh, a good way to explain Trump. He's, a, he's not a set of uh, coherent ideologies, but rather he has a set of impulses. And those impulses tend to uh, in a disturbing direction. Um, so I want to come back to the book for a second, but this is a good segue to something I think about a lot. Um, and I've been meaning to write a big sort of level setting piece about where my head is at on something. Um, I, in the last few years, I've kind of changed my mind about intellectual history. I still love intellectual history. I follow intellectual history. I'm an intellectual history nerd. But um, I used to have this attitude that, you know, that uh, ideas drive everything. I still think ideas are hugely important. And I, and I think Richard Weaver was right when he wrote in Ideas Have Consequences that ideas have consequences. But um, I'm more and more in the 
the uh, sort of Jonathan Haidt uh, evolutionary biology. I mean, he's not an evolutionary biology guy, but this sort of the the psychology stuff I think is important in that a lot of political ideologies, it seems to me there's a lot of intellectual ornamentation that is thrown on top of them to give people permission structure for thinking they're brilliant new ideas and whatnot. And in reality, a, a lot of the time, it's just sort of, there are some basic bits of human nature that reappear because human nature has no history. We're all built from the crooked timber of humanity. And so one of the interesting things to me about Trump is precisely the point you're getting at is that there is no ideological framework that explains Trump. It just turns out that there's something in human nature that likes authoritarian figures, that likes strong men, that that finds it attractive. It pings a certain part of our sweet tooth kind of thing. And, um, and it seems to me that in some ways this is such a vindication of the founders because you could read the Federalist Papers and find all sorts of people all around the world who fit the descriptions, even though they have wildly divergent ideological superstructures to them. Do you know what I'm, what I'm saying? It's, it's, it seems to me that maybe a lot of our intellectual arguments over the last 30 years kind of missed the point that this sort of phenomenon is eternally a problem and a threat because that's how we're wired. Where do you come down on just, how do you respond respond to that? Well, uh, you know, with the Federalists, uh, start with Federalists number one. Hamilton talked about those who have overturned the liberties of republics and paying obsequious court to the people, commencing demagogues and ending tyrants. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good description of Trump. I should say, parenthetically, uh, my students sometimes are resistant to uh, 18th century prose. Uh, so uh, I, I play them the Star Wars clip where Princess Padme sa uh, says, this is how liberty dies with thunderous applause. That's how <laughs> they get that. Uh, yeah. So that I, I use that as, uh, as a wedge into, uh, into Hamilton. Uh, but the more serious point is um, Hamilton talked about uh, demagogues, and that is very much what Trump is. Uh, again, doesn't bring to bear any uh, elaborate uh, intellectual structure. He does have impulses. And from uh, the standpoint of intellectual history, what's important aren't so much the ideas he embraces as the ideas he rejects. And mm -hmm. those ideas are at the heart of what makes America, America. Um, okay, but uh, yeah, I hear it. But like, so Mussolini is someone who I know a good bit about. My hunch is, is that maybe one in a thousand Italians who really liked Mussolini had read the Italian pragmatist Giovanni Papini or George Sorel or or knew anything about uh, you know the the intricacies of socialist thought and all that. They just they liked the strong men. They they found it you know sort of a bin, Osama bin Laden point. You know they backed the strong horse. There was tied up in cultural things about masculinity and whatnot. And, um, and I, guess, I guess what I'm sort of getting at is we know so many people, you and I, who 10 years ago you would not have thought were – there was much daylight between us about the basic questions. Yeah. What is your theory of the case about why – yeah, some of your friends, some of my friends, some of our mutual friends um, can see the guy so differently than you and I do. Some of it is a calculation 
that the alternative is worse. Uh, they, you know, they might even concede uh, a lot of Trump's shortcomings personally, even his dishonesty, but say, uh, what about Hillary? What about Obama? And I understand that point of view. I certainly understand that point of view. But uh, I think the record since January 20th, 2017, particularly uh, the record of 2020, uh, undercuts that argument. Uh, uh, as P.J. O'Rourke said of Hillary Clinton, uh, she was wrong, but wrong within normal parameters. Right. Uh, I just uh, published an article saying, given the choice between Obama and Trump, for all of my many criticisms of Obama and National Review Online, among others, uh, I would take Obama in a heartbeat. Uh, he was a normal president and would react to crises in a, uh, in a mature way. Uh, so I think that's uh, that's where a dividing light is. They tend to see the alternative as so uh, alarming and so loathsome that they're willing to accept Trump. Now, some of them actually embrace uh, what Trump stands for. And I think there, you know, in, in some cases, there may be some projection there uh, that is attributing to Trump uh, ideas that uh, he couldn't even understand, much less espouse. Right. Uh, but I, again, I, I think that's part of what's going on. But a lot of it is, uh, to use the poli-sci phrase, a burst of partisanship. Uh, just uh, picking Trump as the avatar to reject uh, liberalism as it's come to be in the 21st century. Yeah, my, my, my favorite little, and by the way, the book is full of a lot of things that I've just chosen to forget because <laughs> it becomes so exhausting. Um, but it's a really great, if you're looking for reminders of just how far down the road we've gone with Trump. Um, it's a great primer on all of that. And um, it would be, personally, I think it would be very interesting to see a conservative serious, and there are serious ones, uh, Trump defender engage the book in a serious way. Um, but I, I, I'm not holding my, my breath on that. Um, one of my favorite moments was when I think it was during the transition, he was asked if he was going to, def I think it was, defend Article 2 prerogatives yeah. in the Constitution. And he says, Artic yeah, Article 2, Article 3, Article 12, we're going to protect them all. <laughs> you know, and he didn't know there's no Article 12. Um, it's that kind of stuff that makes it hard for me to listen to people tell me he's a real constitutionalist. Um, but if you had, so if you had to go back and prioritize, I mean, what would you say is, you know, your, your chapter on the Russia stuff, which I almost entirely endorse and agree with, is a very useful way of avoiding getting caught in the minutiae of the unmasking and all of this kind of thing. And instead of just dealing with the, the, the plain established facts of what he did and why it was un-American and unpatriotic and, and so forth. But what would you pick as the sort of most emblematic of sort of that that justifies the title on American? Well, uh, what I lead with, uh, and again going to Russia, when he said uh, Russia, if you're listening, and then he invited uh, the Russians uh, to release Hillary Clinton's emails, and uh, shortly thereafter, the Russian military intelligence military did exactly what he had asked. 
Now, uh, obviously, Mueller was not able to prove a cause and effect. And we may never know whether that was something they were planning to do anyway or whether uh, they were doing it in response to uh, uh, to what he was talking about. Uh, but that was an act of gross disloyalty to the United States, inviting Russia to commit espionage on a former secretary of state. Now, uh, you know, he would later say, well, this is just opposition research. Uh, you know, and somebody came to me with uh, foreign intelligence. Uh, yeah, I'd take it. No, 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 no. I have been an opposition researcher. I did opposition research for the 88 Bush campaign. I was deputy director of research at RNC. Anybody thinks I'm a pointy-headed intellectual? All I can say is I work for the Atwater. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I'm very familiar with that work. And legitimate opposition researchers don't come within a country mile of this stuff. It is a prime directive of opposition research. You do not go to foreign governments. Uh, not because you think the oppo guys are pure of art, but because they're smart enough to know that such things can uh, go in a very, very bad direction. Uh, so if I had to pick uh, one episode that uh, really got my attention and that I think really summarizes uh, where Trump is, it's that, uh, putting his own interest ahead of the, uh, ahead of the country. So um, one of the areas of focus that, as a political scientist, that you study um, is Congress and congressional politics. Um, if you had to go back and look at, oh, let me rephrase this. Um, I read on, I was going through your archives at the Claremont Review of Books, um, and I found the book review you did of Sarah Palin's book, Going Rogue, yeah, which was respectful, but ultimately tough on her. And although it breaks my heart, uh, you mentioned my wife in there, but got her first name wrong. Oh. <laughs> it's all right. It happens. Um, but, uh, but if you, you know, tw hindsight is not 2020, but hindsight is illuminating. Um, if you had to go back and you had to look at specific pieces of legislation or organizing things or political moments, so things Congress did or the embrace of Sarah Palin by the party, which I was an enthusiastic part of, at least initially. Um, are there things that you think, oh gosh, I could have, I re really should have seen this coming that the, not just the party, but the intellectual class could become so receptive to, to Trump? Well, I think the Sarah Palin thing uh, was important though. Uh, important thing to remember about Sarah Palin is initially uh, it comes under the heading, seemed like a good idea at the time. If you look at looked at her record as governor of Alaska and as a public official up to that point, uh, you can see it would be very appealing. This is somebody who, yeah. on, on pro-life issues, had walked the walk. Uh, and uh, in her public statements, she seemed like uh, somebody could be a very good candidate. But what we didn't know at the time, at least publicly, is that the uh, McCain campaign had been shocked at her lack of knowledge when they interviewed mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I think that was a, a step forward, uh, toward a bad place. Uh, you know, you can pick uh, a number of things. I think the, uh, if you had to go back, uh, politically, uh, in hindsight, 
uh, going back even further, is the progress that Pat Buchanan made. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1992, one thought that it was just a, uh, 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 a symptom of dissatisfaction with uh, George H.W. Bush. But Buchanan was speaking for something that, uh, again, we, that is clear in hindsight, wasn't clear at the time, was a very large portion of the Republican Party. Going back even further and, and actually relating to another book that I wrote about the 1988 campaign, why Jack Kemp never took off. Mm -hmm. Jack Kemp was talking about opportunities, talking about outreach to African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. And uh, in reviewing the history, I found out that his, his audiences said, wow, what is this? Ah, you know, they, they weren't interested. And so Kemp was uh, uh, appealing to a party that existed in his aspirations, not in reality. Uh, and I think uh, at the time, that reaction of Republicans should have been a tip off that there was this uh, force out there, this attitude uh, that was a resource that somebody like Trump could tap. Uh, so the rejection of Kemp, the embrace uh, of Pat Buchanan on the part of a lot of Republican voters, in hindsight, uh, those are uh, important parts of the story. Um. So one of the things I'm a sort of an obsessive on is this is that one of the reasons why you have the potential for a Trump or a Bernie Sanders has to do with how politics has become a form of entertainment for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. and um, And one of the reasons it has is that Congress, in fact, just doesn't do its job properly anymore. And I think there are problems with the electoral system that explains some of it. Um, there's problems structurally that it's farmed out a lot of its responsibility. You know, the founding fathers, it seems to me, you know this stuff far better than I do, never would have dreamed that Congress wouldn't be a jealous guardian of its own powers and prerogatives. But going back to the progressive revolution, you know, a century ago, we've been piecemeal seeing Congress just hand over the keys to its own powers to the executive branch. And so, and then you have the decline of the par decline of the parties to the point where, of course, someone who's just simply a performer can come in, hijack a party, um, and steal the show. Um, are there structural changes that you would like to see? I mean, what, I'm sure you get asked this all the time. What would you do to fix Congress or what would you do to fix the system? Because part of the parts of this is my point is that Trump is not the author of all of our problems, but he's a, he's a symptom of a lot of them. And he tried to run in 2000 and people laughed him away. There's a re something changed between 2000 or was it 2000? I think it was 2000. Um, between 2000 and 2016, that turned what was considered a joke into something real. And I'm just wondering, you know, if you were given the, the mandate to go fix some of this stuff, where would you start? Well, on Congress, uh, I know uh, what I'm about to propose is going to sound very incremental and wonky, but I think it would do a lot of good. And that's improving the ability of Congress to deliberate, specifically the staffs of the committees and the policy staff. Um, my, my colleague, Matt Glassman, has documented this 
that uh, starting with Gingrich, there was a flow of staff resources away from the policy experts and toward the communications guys, away from the committees and toward the leadership. Uh, so now you have uh, a lot of the staff resources going to people who specialize in clever sound bites. Uh, you don't have the same kind of staff resources in, uh, among people who actually know how social security works. Right. Uh, the Congressional Research Service, again, it sounds wonky, uh, but it's been massively underfunded. The Government Accountability Office, Congress is watched on, massively underfunded. Uh, and I think if uh, Congress could restore the strength of the committee staffs and the uh, and the support agencies, that would go at least part of the way to, uh, toward restoring Congress's role as a co-equal branch of government. Uh, but um, uh, prospects for that are mixed. Uh, there's some support for that on Capitol Hill, but unfortunately, it's not the kind of issue that gets enormous applause on the campaign trail. Um, no, just an anecdote. I gave a speech about a year ago and, uh, for a trade association and small one. And afterwards, uh, I met a woman, one of the organizers of it for a drink. And she until recently had worked on the Hill. And she said, one of the reasons she left was that the, you know, the, representative that she had worked for was had previously been a fairly wonky serious legislator and the problem is is that they've all decided that there's very little percentage in actually caring about legislation um and so they're taking those resources and putting them into pr operations and they're filling their those slots with these you know supposedly brilliant veterans of the trump campaign who merely know how to tweet obnoxious things <laughs> and don't know anything about how to like write laws or shepherd stuff through committees or any of that kind of stuff. It just seems to me that's, if, if that's still going on, that's going to be a very difficult thing to unwind, you know, in the, in the years to come, because when you lose institutional knowledge and expertise, you can't just simply recreate it, um, you know, down the road. Yeah, and I was very lucky on Capitol Hill, particularly on the House side, because I worked with two members uh, who were institutionalists, cared about uh, legislation, cared about the substance of policy. The first was Dick Cheney, uh, and then Jerry Lewis, who uh, would go on to be chair of the Appropriations Committee. And uh, I, I remember that uh, sometimes I would urge Jerry to be much more aggressive in public relations and uh, in hindsight, I realized there was a really good reason why he was the congressman and I wasn't, uh, because he was uh, seriously interested in incremental change, doing deals, getting stuff done. Uh, and I, I've come to appreciate that a lot more in, uh, in recent years. So one of the one of the theories that I happen to subscribe to that you hear from a lot of people is that part of the problem is the incentive structure for Congress, for, for representatives, is different than it used to be. For most of our lives, when you ran for office, you, with, the, with a couple, you know, districts notwithstanding, you basically, you ran, if you were Republican, you ran to the right to win the primary vote, and then you ran to the center to scoop up the moderate Republicans 
and independents and all the rest, and the same thing in reverse with Democrats. And now, because the powers of incumbency are such, the the argument goes: these people still want to get have the same natural politicians' desire to get reelected, but the incentive structure is different because it's now as long as you can survive a primary, you're going to get reelected anyway. Do you? What do you think about like jungle? primaries and first, you know, all that kind of stuff about fixing how we do the actual elections. Well, uh, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis on gerrymandering. And uh, in in some states, that's true. But uh, really, the evidence strongly indicates that a lot of the reason for this isn't deliberate gerrymandering, but uh, so-called unintentional gerrymandering. That is the uh, the tendency of Democrats to uh, to cluster in big cities. As I tell my students, you could shoot a cannon down Wilshire Boulevard and not hit a Republican. <laughs> uh, and uh, you, you have you have Democrats winning by 70, 80, 90 percent in some cases uh, in the cities, whereas in the Republican districts, the margins are still healthy, but not uh, quite as lopsided. And that helps to account for the Republican uh, a lot of uh, uh, why the Republicans were able to get control of the House in, uh, in tw- after the 2010 redistricting. Um, uh, now, as far as solutions go, top two here in California, um, that's, you know, comes under the heading, seemed like a good idea at the time. It, it just hasn't had the uh, advertised effects, in part because voters end up siloing anyway. That is, uh, uh-huh. you know, the theory was, well, moderate Republicans might vote for moderate Democrat and, and vice versa. It just doesn't work that way. Uh, most voters treat it as if it were uh, a closed primary anyway. And so uh, top, top two, you know, here and there it's had the intended effect, but uh, generally uh, it, it hasn't fundamentally changed uh, 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 the nature of polarization here in California. So where do you come down you know, from the on the left? The answer to this stuff is, I mean, sometimes it's just it, 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 it's, it's difficult to get past the stupidity of some of the arguments. And I'm not trying to be too broad brushstroke, but there are a bunch of people who want to get rid of the undemocratic balance between their, their terms of the Senate and the House. And they want to get rid of the Electoral College, which... If you get rid of the Electoral College, I don't know what the argument is to have a Senate in the first place. Um, and they want to just have sort of pure majoritarianism as as much and as far and wide as you possibly can. That seems like not even a good idea at the time kind of thing. That just seems like a bad idea, bad idea right now. Um, but where do you come down on all that? Uh, I think uh, the... Uh Having a Senate with two members per state is the worst possible arrangement except for all the others. Uh, I think, number one, we need bicameralism. You definitely need two sets of eyes on legislation. And if you think through the alternatives, I actually wrote a book chapter on this. uh, None of them really works. Uh, So having the Senate as is, I understand the criticisms of it. Uh, but I think it is uh, a valuable element of our democracy. And I would tell our Democratic friends, uh, you know, in the not too distant past, we had a Republican House of Representatives and a Democratic Senate. And at that time, lots of Democrats were saying, thank God for the Senate. Um, right. So um, uh, I, I would uh, hesitate to get rid of an institution that's been there for a very long time. So 
is the solution then just to ride it out, right? I mean, it, uh, my own view is that the the we may be stuck with two parties called Republican and Democrat for a long time. May not, but probably will be. But what? But the coalitions that those two parties represent could radically change, and then all of a sudden, a lot of this self-sorting that seems like gerrymandering, but is actually you know gerrymandering with your feet, uh, will be less relevant. I mean, is is there? Is this just one of these things that you have to ride out and let parties suffer because of the consequences of their policies or the personalities that run them? Uh, well, I think defeat is very educational. And uh, if you look at if you look at the history of the Republican Party, uh, some of its uh, most creative and positive uh, chapters have come in the wake of defeat. Uh, late 1970s, great deal of ferment on the Republican side, new policy ideas. You had Bill Brock at the Republican National Committee uh, revive, uh, reviving a, uh, uh, a policy journal, even. Uh, and that all came in the wake of uh, Ford's defeat in 1976, at a time when people thought the Republican Party was out of existence. Uh, similarly, uh, the ferment that led to the contract with America, that followed the um, uh, the Clinton victory in 1992. Uh, so there's uh, uh, there's an opportunity anyway in the wake of defeat for a party to uh, uh, regroup, rethink, uh, recalibrate. Uh, that could happen after a Trump defeat. Will it happen? That part I don't know. Uh, but I think if uh, there is a sweeping Democratic victory this November, a lot of Republicans will be uh, very upset and very unhappy, but that could be an opportunity uh, to rebuild a party that uh, is much more constructive and much more responsible. So I know lots and lots of Republican politicians and um, and even some, you know, conservative intellectuals who are writers who are pretty soft or uh, or even beyond soft, sycophantic towards Trump, but when you talk in public, but when you talk to them in private, they say, oh, we're going to go back to Reaganism. We're going to go back to normal. This is just this black swan event. And we have to deal with the president we have and the electorate that we have, and we can get through this. Um, what is, how optimistic are you about that prospect? Because don't you need these voters who have, who actually believe in the Trumpism stuff to go along with it? Yeah. And that's why I, uh, you know, I, I lay that scenario out, out as a hope, uh, but uh, being Irish, uh, I know better than to be overly optimistic that <laughs> uh, uh, there is also a possibility that even in the wake of defeat, even if you have uh, certain party leaders and party officials who have an understanding of what the party would need to do, uh, to grow and reach uh, new constituencies, you're going to have a hard core of primary voters who have a different idea. Uh, that so far has pretty much been the experience of Republicans here in California. Uh, even a decade ago, uh, you had Schwarzenegger say, yeah, well, we're dying at the box office. And <laughs> uh, he was right, but they have continued to die at the box office. Uh, uh, and... Uh, I, I haven't seen any signs yet that the uh, Republican Party statewide is in any position to come back. There are a couple of places they're running good candidates, uh, but overall, uh, I can't say I'm very 
optimistic about the future of the party here in California. Perhaps nationwide things could play out differently. Um, so how much has your, you know, I mean, I, I know you mostly through the pages of back when I was at NR, through NR, but also from really the, the CRB, Claremont Review of Books. Um, we travel in not the same waters, but similar waters. Um, how much is your refusal to sort of recognize the power and genius of Donald Trump caused you to have frayed relationships with people? I mean, is it a problem for you or is it just, you know, politics is a small part of life and it hasn't really made a difference? Yeah, it hasn't really made a, a huge difference on a personal level. I mean, one great thing about Fairmont McKenna College is it's, it's part of our DNA uh, to engage with people you disagree with, even though we have a reputation as a quote-unquote conservative school. Actually, all along, the majority of our faculty members have been liberal and uh you know, I've always gotten along with them, and I get along fine with uh, the colleagues who, uh, who support Trump. Uh, so it really hasn't caused any personal odds. I, I know some of my uh, liberal friends have said, boy, you must really have great courage. And I said, I don't have <laughs> courage. I have tenure. Uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, it didn't take a great deal of uh, of intestinal fortitude to, to take the stand because really there's, there's nothing anybody can do to me about it. <laughs> but I mean, are you still writing for CRB regularly, or just not about Trump and not like that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, uh, you know, I might. I suppose I'll. Uh, uh, I might write some things for them in the future, but I haven't written for them lately. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to put you in an awkward or a oh, bad no, situation. No, no. It's just, I just find that you know, I, I love the Claremont Review books. I they pick me to write the. Uh, the review of the 10 year anniversary phone book size collection of stuff from them because I'm, I was such an evangelist for the thing. And, um, and I just find it very odd that a center and a journal, and I still consider a lot of people associated with it friends and I like them very much, but you know, the West coast Straussian crowd was all about statesmanship and rhetoric <laughs> and the constitution. And, um, I just find it very strange. If you, if you were going to ask me to pick a group that would be immune to the charms of Donald Trump among the sort of uh, in the eggheadosphere um, around, I would have said probably those guys. And I was just wrong about that. And I just find it kind of interesting. And there are a few um, exiles from that world or, you know, I want to say exiles in that they've been unpersoned or anything, but there are some really strong feelings out there on both sides of that divide. And um just kind of curious on your take about it. Yeah. And I guess, uh, again, I, I keep coming back to our, uh, uh, the ethos at, at CMC is that we just uh, get along with each other. Uh, you know, to the extent that there are conflicts, they, they, they tend to deal with very internal campus stuff rather than grand issues of politics. As uh, yeah. Kissinger said, the, uh, uh, you know, academic policy is so vicious because the stakes are so small. Uh, so, uh, it, you know, it's, it's what causes arguments on a college campus isn't the future of the country, uh, but the composition of the administration committee. Right, right. Or, or who gets parking spaces. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So, um, are, I, 
I hate asking this question because I hate being asked this question, but um, I, who are you planning on voting for in 2020? I voted for Joe Biden in uh, uh-huh. our top two primary. Uh, you know, I, on election night 2016, I uh, changed my registration to no party preference, which is California speak for independent. And in California, independents can vote in the Democratic primary. Uh, it was the very first time I'd ever voted in the Democratic Party. I had never, ever voted for a Democrat for president in my life. Uh, in 2016, I had written in Evan McMullen uh, in the general election. Uh, and I'm going to vote for Joe Biden in the fall. Um, so I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, but I'm also not going to vote for Donald Trump. Part of my rationale, which annoys a lot of people, first and foremost, my wife, um, is that I don't think my vote matters very much because I live in the District of Columbia. And so I can vote aspirationally. I can try and send a message as I see fit. Um, I've never lived anywhere. My vote wasn't canceled out at least seven to one. So um, uh, it doesn't bother me. But one of, the, but I understand people have different views about the the great the the glories of voting and all of that. But one of the things I find sort of maddening is that people think if they ask me that question and I say either answer Joe Biden or Donald Trump, that that somehow requires me to then work, you know, to write in favor of one or another and to operate essentially as a, um, as a messenger for one party or another. And I think this the reason I bring it up is I think that one of the real big problems that the conservative movement has gotten into is that it, it's the dog that caught the car. It took over the Republican Party, but was it not at all interested or even knowledgeable of how to drive? And um, and they still there's still a lot of people in my line of work who think that part of their job is really to be sort of a de facto message consultant or political consultant for their party. Um, you know, one of the things you, you have tenure, I don't, you know, but it seems to me that it would be nice if a lot more conservative intellectuals actually had a more hostile relationship with the Republican party than the sort of let's pave the way for it attitude. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah. And, uh, I agree about, uh, the, uh, uh, expectation that one is supposed to be a, uh, a spokesperson uh, I've gotten hate mail from both sides. Uh, in fact, just re- in the past 24 hours, I've gotten hate mail from both sides. <laughs> I wrote a, uh, the piece about why I would prefer uh, Obama to, uh, to Trump. I got some very interesting emails from uh, Trump supporters, as you might imagine. But I got an email from an Obama supporter who was incensed that I even mentioned the criticism of Obama. <laughs> uh, even though I came, even though I said Obama was a decent man, um, and it, should Biden be elected president, I think a lot of my uh, friends will be disappointed in me for uh, criticizing him, and I expect uh, that I'll disagree with a lot of what Biden uh, would do as president. But uh, you know, that's that's not our job. I, you know, I have been a party spokesperson. You know, mm-hmm. I, I used to do that for a living, and now I have a different job. It's not the same. Um, okay, I want to ask you, uh, we're going to do some rapid fire 
uh, in the weeds things. Um, but before I do that, uh, I really got to talk about something that's hugely important to me, and that's Father's Day, and specifically underwear on Father's Day. So if there's one thing that people know about me is that chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear, but when I do, it's usually something interesting. Uh, no, just kidding. Father's Day can be stressful trying to find the perfect gift for dad. Thankfully, Tommy John, the revolutionary underwear and clothing brand, knows that comfort is for everyone. Yep, even your dad. So gift him the softest, most breathable base layer he has ever worn. Their new and improved men's underwear is now twice as durable as his current pair and infinitely more luxurious, guaranteed. They're made from rich Corinthian leather. No, that's an ad lib. That's not true. That wouldn't be comfortable. And Tommy John is comfortable. Plus, Tommy John is offering their best Father's Day deal ever with 25% off site-wide, including easy-to-get gift sets that you can order straight from your phone directly to dad's door. Now, if you heard me on the um, Glop podcast recently, I voluntarily riffed about how much of a convert I am uh, to Tommy John. Uh, they are, uh, they're game changers. I, I want to uh, be pretty serious about that. Um, there is just, you know, as I, as I said on the Glop thing, they remind me of Elaine Bennis' line from Seinfeld about stuffed crust pizza. She was like, it's going to be years before they find a new place to put cheese on a pizza. And the fact that they reinvented the fly after my very brief reading of the history of underwear, 10 million years, um, and made it better is just a big deal. Um, and also, you know, look, dads, you know, if, if, you get them underwear that they actually like and they think is comfortable and it puts them in a good mood and then you leave them alone for an afternoon so they can, you know, watch the Dirty Dozen on TV without being bothered for a little while or maybe smoke a cigar. Um, that's a good day. So uh, I think, you know, for the, for the men out there who wear their underwear into the ground, this is a great idea for Father's Day. So treat Dad to a few pairs of Tommy John underwear and the softest, most breathable fabrics he's ever worn. All of Tommy John's layers are built for next-level comfort, whether you're on the hunt for lounge pants, lazy day joggers, or the softest Zoom-ready tees and polos you or Dad has ever worn. Tommy John has you covered. Remember to get your order in before June 17th to ensure that your gift arrives before Father's Day. Tommy John is so confident in their underwear that if you don't love your first pair, you can get a full refund with their best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Tommy John, no adjustment needed. Tommy John has the perfect gift for all dads in your life. Deliver comfort to dad's door with 25% off site-wise at tommyjohn.com remnant. That's tommyjohn.com remnant. 25% off site-wide. Seaside for details, tommyjohn.com dot com slash remnant. So um, uh, you may not know about this me, but about this about me, but one of the things that um, I'm a bit of an evangelist for is expanding the House of Representatives. And mm -hmm. I think that um, people don't, you know, I mean, like I can, I can do the whole spiel, but, um, you know, it was, there are some who argue that it's the true First Amendment and it wasn't properly ratified, or it was properly ratified, but it was ignored. 
Um, it's one of the, it's, I believe it's the only time that George Washington spoke up at the Constitutional Convention was to say, hey, you can't make districts that big and had them reduce them from, I think, 35,000 to 25,000. Um, I think you can make a case that the, the substantive point is, is that having a house that's frozen at the same number since what, like 1910, 1920, yeah. um, you're losing that organic relationship of the house being the voice of the people. Um, it would siphon off some of the populism. It would also allow Congress to actually be a place where politics takes place again. Um, and I know that this is almost certainly never going to happen. But uh, where do you come down on the issue of this vital and important issue? Uh, I, I agree. I've written on this. And I think that uh, expanding the House would be a, a really good idea for a variety of reasons. Uh, one, it would help resolve the uh, problem of uh, unintentional gerrymandering. Uh, you have uh, representatives who are able to represent true communities of interest. Uh, you, uh, you know, it would... Uh, resolve a problem, and this is deep into the weeds, uh, of uh, inequality of representation. People might say, well, are all house uh, districts the same size? No, they're not. Uh, they have to be all mm -hmm. the same size within a state. Uh, but when you get to uh, states like Rhode Island and Montana, uh, you know, tiny differences in population needs a different, means a difference between having one representative and two, and that makes a huge difference in the, uh, in the representation ratio. Uh, so if we had a bigger house, you wouldn't have anomalies like that. Uh, and uh, you're right, you'd have uh, members who are somewhat closer to the people. Uh, I think that would be a great idea. But uh, again, it's a hard sell because the last thing uh, most voters want is more politicians. Right. Um, but they also claim to want more representation, right? They want more authentic representation. And when you're when the average congressman represents more people than the average senator did, you know, 200 years ago, you something needs to kind of get fixed, I would argue. Yeah, but, and, and all right. it's a huge problem here in California with state senate districts. The state senate district in California has more people than South Dakota. <laughs> it's like uh, when uh, a uh, guy from South, Mayor South Bend, Pete um, Buttigieg. Buttigieg, when he was running... Uh, someone pointed out that uh, South Bend has fewer people than five of the cities in L.A. County yeah. or something like, or municipalities, yeah. which is kind of insane. Um, so an another bugaboo of mine is I love C-SPAN. Love it. Passionate. Lo I, I think Brian Lamb is an American patriot and a wonderful guy and all that kind of stuff. I'm coming around, thanks in part to Yuval Levin, to thinking that it was a terrible mistake to put cameras in Congress. Um, because it makes deliberation harder. As, as Yuval puts it, you cannot negotiate in public. It's just impossible. Even the Constitution was written behind closed doors precisely because if you're seen, I mean, they didn't have cameras for other reasons, but if you're seen um, throwing your own side, members of your own coalition under the bus to get a larger deal that is in the interest of everybody, um, you get called on it. And having a little more opaqueness rather than constant transparency would improve the quality of government. Where do you come down on that? Uh, floor sessions, uh, I would uh, strongly favor continued coverage of floor sessions. However, and again, I know this sounds extremely wonky, but when it comes to markup, 
uh, I think there is a, uh, a very good reason to have committee meetings, committee business, uh, at least some of it behind closed doors. Uh, people say, uh, well, what about the people? And the answer is the people who are paying the closest attention are lobbyists. Uh, the people who are watching, the people who are in the room, most of them are paid to be there. Uh, mm -hmm. So it isn't the general public that benefits from a lot of the transparency, but rather uh, the, the very special interest that the advocates of transparency often belittle. Uh, so I think the uh, the idea of having at least some committee meetings, some committee business behind closed doors is actually a good idea. Okay, last one of my greatest hits is um, I think that, you know, and we can move the, use this as an excuse to get back to, to Trump. Um, I think that one of the reasons why the party was so amenable to being hijacked by Trump is that the parties are too weak and that in, you know, in past eras, someone like Donald Trump just simply, or Bernie Sanders, wouldn't be allowed to compete for the nomination um, because the parties used to have the kind of power and, um, and sort of fiduciary understanding of their own role in protecting the interests of the party over the long term to allow themselves to sort of be hijacked by showmen, grifters, demagogues, populists, and all of the rest. Um, and my understanding is still, I think I, I, I think I originally got this from Elaine Kmark, is that with the possible exception in recent years of the UK, the US is the first advanced democratic nation in the world whose parties have voluntarily abdicated the power to pick their own nominees. Um, so I'm for sort of stronger, less democratic political parties. If I had my druthers, I would basically get rid of primaries entirely, but I don't think that's going to be easy to do either. Um, A, do you agree that the parties are too weak? And B, what would you do about sort of reforming them? Well, uh, it's funny you mention that because in my uh, parties class this semester, I showed video uh, with Elaine Kmark, and she explains mm -hmm. Uh, the role of superdelegates, and she was a superdelegate in several conventions, and I believe that is uh, an important role. I think the Democrats were right to uh, institute superdelegates. I think they were wrong uh, to uh, reduce the role of superdelegates. Uh, you have something vaguely like that on the Republican side, but I think both parties would be much healthier if you did have a large share of uh, party leaders and elected officials serving as uncommitted delegates who could exercise independent judgment. And for the very reasons that Wayne uh, cited, among other things, uh, she said, uh, well, you think superdelegates are bad? Just imagine if John Edwards uh, had been uh, uh, a live uh, presidential contender and then uh, the scandalous information had come out. That's where the superdelegates could have exercised their judgment. Uh, I think that's right. I think uh, superdelegates probably would not have blocked to Donald Trump. Uh, so if I, I had to pick one thing that the party itself could do uh, to reform itself. And uh, 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 I think having a role for peer evaluation would be very important. So, you know, just I do want to get back to the book. I know that, I mean, part of my problem is um, I have some listeners who are just sick of hearing about Trump. Uh, and I, myself, sometimes I get 
Trump fatigue. People think I'm obsessed with Trump when in reality, I think my position is basically so obviously correct <laughs> about his unfitness for office that I find I'm belaboring people with it. But um, I think your book is a very useful thing. If, 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 if there are listeners out there who want to give their uncle who doesn't want to hear anything bad about Trump a reasoned argument from somebody who has really good standing as a conservative and as a Republican, I think it's about as good as you're going to get um, to make those kinds of cases. But so what, what prompted you? What are the origins? Why did you want to write this book? Uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, uh, as you mentioned, my work for the Republican Party when in the 1980s, when Reagan was president, a lot of my work consisted of uh, preaching the glories of free trade. And I believed it then, I believe it now. And Trump has totally rejected that. In the 1980s, we warned people about Russia. Well, you don't have to go into uh, Trump's record on that point either. Uh, after that, I started teaching uh, introductory American government at Claremont McKenna College. I uh, teach the Federalist Papers, the Constitution, uh, the Declaration of Independence. And uh, I try to drive home to my students what the country stands for, that it's not an ethnic identity, it's not just a place, it's a set of ideas. And the more that Trump talked, the more I realized that Trump rejected the very ideas that the country is founded on. Uh, and so that more than anything drove me to write this book. Yeah, there's a very strange thing about Trump in that he wants to talk about the greatness of America, how it used to be great, how it's great under him and all these kinds of things. But he's been very clear that he rejects the idea of American exceptionalism. Yeah. And that's a weird thing, right? You know, I mean, um, do you have a theory about, you know, is it that he just simply doesn't understand what the word, what the phrase means? Well, and it's even weirder because uh, among other things, he's done it in the context of siding with Vladimir Putin. Uh, mm -hmm. When uh, Barack Obama started talking about American exceptionalism, uh, Putin had a ghostwritten piece in the New York Times deriding American exceptionalism. Then Trump went on Greta Van Susteren and sided with Putin. Uh, and, and that should have been a big red flag to lots of people. Uh, mm -hmm. When he does talk about American exceptionalism, again, it's not in the context of ideas. Uh, he says, well, the other countries have been eating our lunch. Uh, and uh, he doesn't seem to understand that it's about uh, the ideas of America. He said it's uh, for him exceptionalism is all about material prosperity. And uh, coming back to a reason I wrote the book and the reason why I think he's a rejection of republicanism, I happened to be in the hall when Reagan gave his last speech to a Republican convention in 1992, and he finished by saying that uh, he hoped that young people would understand, would love their country not for its power or wealth, uh, but for its selflessness and idealism. Uh, and, you know, that's America. Uh, that's what uh, Americans stand for. That's what I thought the Republicans stood for. And that's why I wrote this book. So one of the questions I get all the time, because it's more of the sort of argumento ad flight 93-ism, um, is that it's a binary choice and, you know, they were much more, you were, people were much more comfortable making this argument when they thought Bernie Sanders was going to be president. Uh, 
right? Or Elizabeth Warren that could say, well, you know, but they're making it now about Biden too, is that a vote for the Democrats is a vote for socialism and that will get socialism. Um, I, I don't think that's true, um, but I, I don't dismiss that there's a possibility that we'll get lots of policies we don't like. Um, but how? what is your response to, to that? I mean, just specifically, you know, imposing socialism is a very difficult legislative agenda. <laughs> um, uh, what, what is the worst case scenario for you of a Biden presidency? Uh, worst case scenario is uh, he supports lots of policies I disagree with, uh, makes Supreme Court appointments I don't like. Uh, I think that's very likely. I, I, I expected to, would expect to disagree with the Biden administration. But again, as P.J. O'Rourke said of Hillary Clinton, wrong within normal parameters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Biden, unlike Trump, uh, would observe certain norms of conduct, uh, understand what the Constitution's about. Uh, and so there would be effective checks. Uh, if he goes too far, yeah, you're going to have Republican attorneys general who are going to mount lots of lawsuits as they did against Barack Obama. Uh, I, I think if uh, Biden got out of line uh, in presidential authority, the system would work. The system would check him the way it's supposed to. So I would not be at all afraid of a Biden administration. The problem with Trump is he ignores those norms and his party is letting him get away with it. Uh, and uh, I think that's a that's a fundamental difference. All right, uh, Jack Pitney, thanks so much for doing this. The book is uh, Un-American: The Fake Patriotism of Donald Trump. It's on sale now wherever there aren't looters <laughs> or uh, pandemics. <laughs> thanks, Jack. I appreciate it. Thank you. My fondest hope for each one of you, and especially for the young people here. Yes, all right. And What this is, my hope, is that you will love your country not for her power or wealth, but for her selflessness and idealism. All right, so Jack Pitney has left the room, as it were. Um, I was very sincere about the book. I think it's it's an easy read, and by which I mean um, it's very clear, it's very detail-driven, it's passionate without being overwrought, um, and... Jack is a good guy. Um, as you could tell, I was trying to get him to get a little more in the weeds on some of these things that sort of fascinate me about who has um, decided to embrace Trumpism and those who have decided not to. It's it's a it's a weird tribe where um, it's hard. You know, if if you again, if you'd asked me 15 years ago if you described this situation to predict who was all in and who would go all in and who wouldn't. Um, there are some people that I'm sure I would, I'm confident I would have predicted. Um, but there are other real surprises and we don't need to get into the weeds about all of that. Uh, one person who is all in on Trump is my friend, uh, Andrew Clavin from, uh, the daily wire. I did a hit on his 
show earlier today. Um, you should check it out. You know, we have strong disagreements, but it was friendly and cordial. So needless to say, lots of people will be very angry about it. Um, and um, I will spare you um, for later. Maybe we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about it on the Dispatch podcast, um, my own views about how Trump has responded to uh, the protests, the pandemic, and all of the rest. Needless to say, he is not... Um, He's not meaningfully upset or, or run against what my expectations would be. And um, other than that, thanks for all the nice feedback about the solo stuff. And um, if you haven't listened to it, the Joseph Uzinski uh, podcast about conspiracy theories, uh, I just keep hearing from people about how much they love that thing and how interesting it was. Go back and check that thing out. Um, I thought it was a lot of fun and I could have talked to that guy for a very long time. Other than that, uh, stay safe out there. Don't loot. Um, don't get a, the COVID-19. And, um, and don't try to feed a bear a marshmallow while holding it with your lips. And, and with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 